0: Kalani grew up in Texas in the 1980s, the oldest child of her Tongan father and white mother. Navigating life as a biracial Latter-day Saint young woman wasn't easy, particularly as she got older and more interested in finding a marriage partner. This was due to certain messages she got at church discouraging interracial marriage.
1: I think the thing that has most impacted my life Tension-wise about the church is that I remember being taught that we were not supposed to marry outside of our race. As a biracial person, hearing that to me meant that no matter who I married, it wouldn't be pleasing to God because I'm bringing that into the marriage no
0: matter what. Right. Whichever way you go. Right. And so that's something that I really struggled with. Church talks, lessons, and articles discouraging interracial marriage have all but disappeared in recent years. The 2013 Gospel Topics essay, Race and the Priesthood, clearly disavows old church teachings casting interracial marriage as sinful. But Kalani, who reached adulthood in the late 1990s, felt the long tentacles of these old teachings reach into the present and affect her life in significant ways. My name is Caroline Klein, and today we'll be sharing parts of Kalani's 2015 oral history interview. This episode is part two of our series focusing on Latter-day Saints oral histories that touch on the important issue of race. We were privileged in our last episode to have Kalani Tonga join us as a discussion partner, and I'm very happy to have her join us again today to talk more about her own story and her continuing work to promote the voices, worldviews, and perspectives of Polynesian people. Kalani's parents met in the most Mormon of ways, at the Oakland Temple Pageant. Her father was from Tonga, and her mother was an American of European descent. Kalani was the oldest of the children, and grew up in Texas in a predominantly white community. It was a typical, happy American Latter-day Saint childhood, and she was a gifted athlete. With her dad coaching her in high school, she eventually went to the University of Utah and BYU as a volleyball player. But navigating life as a half-white, half-Tongan young woman was sometimes difficult. Like so many Latter-day Saint women, she wanted to fall in love and get married. But finding someone proved to be difficult, and she couldn't help wondering if her difficulties stemmed, at least in part, from her identity as a biracial woman, and from old church teachings that instructed people to marry within their race.
1: And then when I got to college, I had four different relationships within about a six-year period, maybe, Mm -hmm. that were all fairly long, like eight eight months to a couple of years and they were all with Polynesian men and all four of them after that long period within the next few months they ended up marrying either white women or full Polynesian women it felt to me at that time like they don't want you because you're neither and so that was a really hard thing For me to deal with and for me to try to grapple with because I felt like, just like I was unmarriageable, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't, and through no fault of, like it wasn't something that I could correct.
0: Kalani eventually met the man who would become her husband, a man who was in a Tongan gang and had served some time in prison. They had a baby together and then he went to prison again. During this difficult time, she taught high school geography. And when her husband was released from prison, their family grew rapidly. She had another son, and then a year later, twin girls. But it was not a good situation.
1: I wanted to leave for a really long time. And I, I remember standing outside and watching him drive away with our last $20 to go buy beer. And looking up at the sky and crying and asking heavenly father if it was okay for me to leave and getting the answer no not (sighs) yet and just feeling really angry because Mm. it was such a terrible situation but then i got pregnant with sophia and i feel like looking back that's what i was waiting for yeah
0: With the birth of her last child, Kalani became the mother of four children, two years old and younger, in addition to her older son. Caring for so many young children is tough in the best of circumstances, but things devolved further when her husband was sent to prison again.
1: He went to prison for homicide by assault. He was there for
0: six years. Kalani, at that point, made the decision to divorce. She lived with her mom and worked to provide for her kids— but these were indescribably heavy burdens she was carrying. In talking to a therapist to try to understand how and why she had made some of the decisions she did, she came to some new understandings about herself and the role these old church teachings about race and interracial marriage had on her.
1: Like, I hate it when people are like, well, it's not that big of a deal that they're teaching outdated material. You know what I mean? Because it's like, but it is because it directly impacted my understanding of myself. I feel like it directly impacted my marriage choice, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, part of why you married. I think so. Like, I don't think it was a conscious decision and I've done a lot of counseling to, you know, try to get past some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like I remember telling my therapist, I was like, you know, I feel like I can go into a room and there will be a room full of guys that are moderately interested in me and I will pick out the one with the most baggage and be like, that's the guy for me. (laughs) And he was like, yeah, because their baggage makes yours feel okay. And I really thought about that and I feel like that's accurate. So it makes a difference in people's lives when they hear things like that.
0: Kalani is most drawn to Latter-day Saint teachings that emphasize unity and equality.
1: I love the idea that we're all equal in the sight of God and that we all have intrinsic value and worth and that that's unchanging.
0: She has also been heartened by the goodness of Relief Society sisters who saw her burdens and stepped in to help during the hardest times.
1: I've really grown to appreciate the Relief Society, especially like when my twins were in the NICU and then when they, you know, Mm. when they got out, um, and I had been on hospital bed rest before they were born. And so I had, you know, my boys, my visiting teachers were awesome and they, you know, got people to come and clean my house and, you know, do meals and. But more than that, like, I remember there were women that I rarely talked to, you know what I mean? Like that I just saw Mm -hmm. at Relief Society and there was one in particular that I remember called and said, I'd like to come over every Tuesday for the next two months from one to three so that you can get done whatever you need to do. And that was something it was, I needed that. I'm not good at asking. And the way that it was phrased didn't give me the option. I'm going to plan on coming over. You know, is this a good time for you? Instead of, do you need any help? So that was something that was really, so it was beautiful. really meaningful yeah. to me. Yeah. And really, um, it's what I feel like the Relief Society is supposed to be. Yeah, that's the best of the Relief
0: Kalani made a place for herself, not only in her local ward, but also in the Tongan community. But navigating norms of Tongan culture while living in the United States can also be tricky at times. She's uncomfortable with some of the ways certain gospel principles play out in Tongan contexts.
1: You know, Tongan modesty is out of control. Women don't wear swimsuits at all. It's t-shirts and shorts everywhere. Even, you know, even in the United States, it's inappropriate.
0: How did that happen? It was just you know hypersexualization of
1: of women, and then you know, so they were told to cover up, and so it's just you know gotten out of control, and like cover up. You know, I I wrote this blog post kind of about some of the things that were challenging Mm -hmm. about being involved in the Tongan culture, but living in America. And I got so many responses back from women who were like, yeah, I remember the day that I was not allowed to wear shorts anymore. Or I remember the day that things like that were it's okay up to a point and then you're not allowed to anymore.
0: Kalani does see some important space for Latter-day Saint scripture to push against certain cultural Tongan norms that she finds problematic. For example, she values the story of Nephi because of the way he breaks away from his older siblings.
1: Nephi breaking away from that has been really useful in my life in being able to say, even the scriptures say, that we don't, we're not expected to do this. Sibling ages are really important in the Tongan okay. culture. You know, I've just seen people that have done like really crappy things but it's because they were more worried about being offensive to their older siblings than they were about doing the right thing.
0: Kalani is a gifted writer and hopes to work more in the world of writing and editing. In particular, she sees a need for more stories of and visibility for women who look like her. She has plans to one day publish a book about remarkable Polynesian women. Kalani, I love your oral history and the way you thoughtfully talk about your life and the identities and circumstances you've navigated. Now, it has been six years since that oral history was conducted. Would you be willing to share some updates about your life?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm living in Utah now. At the time that we spoke, I was living in Texas. I moved out to Utah because You know, like we said, in the oral history, my husband went to prison and we got divorced. And when he got out, we (laughs) reconciled, which was not something that I ever expected to do. And then we kind of were working things out for the kids and then something happened with with one of my kids i have i have a son who has some special needs and he was restrained by his principal and the principal gave him a bloody nose and a swollen lip and then tried to tell me that my son did it to himself but my son is not nonverbal <laughs> so he explained to me what happened and so i called i called you now and i was like you know i I don't know what to do because I can't send him back to school. And I, I can't keep him home because I have to work. You know, I was working three jobs at the time and I was like, I just, I, I don't know what to do. And you said, just, just come to Utah, come to Utah. They're my kids too. We'll work it out. And so I took this huge leap of faith <laughs> and ended up in Utah and yeah, I, I hated it here when I was here for college. I swore I would never move back, but it was the best decision of my life. You know, I came back and we reconciled and our life was great, much different than than it had been. And then unfortunately in January, Finau got up on a regular Monday morning and went to work and he never came home. He had a massive heart attack at work and the coroner said that he was gone before he even hit the ground. So that has been obviously a big challenge for me, but it has also really been an opportunity to experience an outpouring of love like I had never had before. So much to be thankful for even in the midst of such a huge tragedy in my life.
0: Oh, Kalani, I'm yeah, that is just such a devastating thing. And I'm just I'm just so sorry to hear about this. And and now you're you're navigating Single parenthood and again uh, again again, and I'm sure and it's and it's just it's just utterly devastating so thank you for thank you for updating us about your life and It is kind of wonderful to think about you guys getting back together and having some happy years and so i'm yeah. I am happy for that, but I, I my heart goes out to you um thank you now, thinking about your life and and you just mentioned the power of community and and this outpouring of love that you've experienced recently. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, have you continued to build ties with the Polynesian community? You know, has the Polynesian community given you a kind of sustenance over the last few years? If you could talk a little bit about your participation in the Polynesian community, I would love to hear some of that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a woman, her name is Suzy Felch Malohifo. She's been doing a lot of really cool work within the Polynesian community in Utah. And she got an award from the FBI for her work in domestic violence. She's just done a lot of really cool things um, within the community. And so when I got to Utah, that was one of the very first things I did is I looked up the programs that she was working with and I volunteered. So I started out just volunteering for her nonprofit organization And then I eventually started working with some women's peer-to-peer support groups. I was facilitating the support groups for a while. It's a big umbrella organization called Pacific Island Knowledge to Action Resources. And under the umbrella, there are different arms that do different things. And one of the arms that I, I got interested in was PAO, which is Pacifica Enriching Arts of Utah. So it's the arts arm of this organization that works with all different kinds of arts. So I I got involved with the organization and started, you know, just just as a participant. And that led to different roles within the organization. I was the literary coordinator and we ran a Pacific Islander book club that where we read all books that were written by Pacific Islanders. Anyway, now I'm the director <laughs> oh, congratulations of this organization, you know, this piece of the organization. I came to it as a participant, and then I eventually got into some leadership roles. But there was a time, you know, I, <laughs> I remember I went to work one day and I came home and we had been living with my in-laws and finao and his mom had had a disagreement and I came home and he was like, we're not going back there. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So where are we going? And he's like, I don't know, but we're not going back there. So, you know, for a couple of months, we kind of floated in between hotel rooms and relatives and. It was, you know, a really stressful time for me, but PICTAR really helped with helping us find housing, you know, because of Finau's prior criminal record, there were a lot of places that they didn't even, like they didn't even after the background check, call us back. They didn't need to, you know, look at us because they already knew that they were not interested in housing us. And so that was a really hard moment, but I was able to use the resources that PICTAR provides to help us figure out what to do next. And so I think one of the cool things is that I've been both a recipient and a participant as well as a leader. And so, you know, it's, it's easy to get involved with a community when you already have experience being the person that needs the help and then being able to help others is it's just a satisfying thing and also it I feel a sense of responsibility to give back because of what has been given to me
0: what a fantastic organization and I do love that you've participated in on every level you've participated in this organization so oh, i'm so glad to hear that that you are now in in a leadership position and that it really was such a support to you when you needed it. So one thing that I really loved about your oral history was I loved how you reflected on the issue of race in your life as a Mormon woman. And you mentioned how the discourse of, you know, against interracial marriage really, really had an impact on you and your self-conception growing up. And of course, that kind of discourse is kind of, it's become less common. But, you know, these things, as we know, they do kind of, they have long tentacles and they do, they do last, unfortunately. But I was wondering if you could talk about in the last several years, like, you know, have there been other issues of race tied to Mormonism? that's played out in your life in, in any way? Like, have there been any important moments or talks or events in the LDS community regarding race that has stood out to you?
1: Um, (laughs) yes, (laughs) I feel a little hesitant to talk about this, but I'm going to go ahead and just mention a couple of things. I feel like, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the organization that I work for in PICTAR is that there's a difference between being Polynesian and being pro-Polynesian, right? Same thing with like any minority group, really. There's a difference between being Black and being pro-Black. There's a different, you know. And when I think about the strides that have been made Within like representation in the church of minority groups, I feel like there have been lots of minority people elevated to positions of power that are not necessarily pro-minority. So that has been an interesting thing to watch play out within the church. I also feel like I don't know. I know that this isn't directly tied to race, but it's, again, dealing with marginalization. There have been some recent experiences on BYU's campus, specifically with the LGBTQ community, that I just felt like make it really hard to be a minority in this religion and feel welcome. So in those ways, I think we've had some things that have been hard. You know, I always come back to the greatest commandments are to love each other. And and I feel like if we could just do that, so much of the other just stuff is stuff. I know I'm being like incredibly vague I don't feel comfortable like calling people out specifically, I guess. But yeah, I think there have been some things that have happened within the church that are just, it just makes it so hard to be different at all. And I, I think that the church is poorer for having that attitude.
0: Mm -hmm. I appreciate your vulnerability and honesty there, Kalani. I know it's hard. It is hard to talk about these things. And I, I, yeah I, I I appreciate that so much. If you had like had a wish list of one or two or three things that you think could really actually help the church move forward in terms of being a really wonderful, loving, welcoming place for more people from different positionalities, what would what would you say? I
1: think that as long as there is an unwillingness to acknowledge deficiencies? it can't possibly change on a level that is meaningful. When we hear from the top down that the church does not apologize or make mistakes, you know, I I don't know how to fix that. Like, okay. (laughs) And I think that would go such a long way. I just think, I don't know. I just think like, for example, with my children, some of the, most meaningful interactions that I've had with them are when I'm able to look them in the eye and say, I was wrong and I'm sorry. And I just think it shifts the power dynamic in a way that the church is unwilling to attempt. And I think it would be such a brave and kind and Christ-like gesture to be able to, to say, I'm sorry, and I made a mistake, or I'm sorry that this was hurtful, you know, and I just think the fact that we, we are not at that place makes it a space that is not healthy for anybody that doesn't fit the mold. And there's not a way to correct that without that acknowledgement.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I think you bring up a really important point, point. one I've heard echoed, you know, by many people of color in the Mormon community, that, that a starting point is to acknowledge places that need to be improved and also acknowledge mistakes in the past. So I really appreciate your insight on that, Kalani. And maybe our last question is just to go back to your life a little bit and something that I've loved. I'm Facebook friends with you. So I see see what you put up on Facebook. And (laughs) sometimes you put up the most wonderful art that you've been working on. You are an artist. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your art and the messages that you hope to get across with your art. Yeah.
1: So a couple of things. I have a new painting that's up in the Certain Women art show right now that's of my interpretation of Heavenly Mother. So that's related to this. I think, (laughs) you know, I went to school for, I studied history. There's so many things that I worked really hard on for all of my life. And the only thing that makes me money right now is something that I just like picked up on a whim. And so it's kind of fun, like when you say that I'm an artist, it always kind of makes me giggle. Like when I first started doing this, so I've, I've been doing art for about two years now. And, you know, when <laughs> I first started, oh, so it was through PICTAR, the organization that I work for. They partnered with another nonprofit That had art studio space, and they were like, Okay, you guys can come and use our studio and all of our supplies on Monday nights and have an open studio for your community. And so I started going and, you know, just painting stuff. And I feel like the work that I do, the artwork that I create, it's been very meaningful to me in that, you know, I kind of talked a little bit in my interview about how. It's hard to feel like you belong and you don't belong when you're biracial. And because I wasn't raised in a super Tongan household, I didn't have access to information about Tongan stuff, you know? And so when I started painting, I was painting these Polynesian tribal patterns, all that I knew about them I had to read online it's not like it was generational information that was passed on to me like I joke about everybody has their auntie that teaches them things and my my auntie is auntie YouTube (laughs) where (laughs) I just have to look things up because I didn't I wasn't exposed to those kinds of things you know growing up and so Um, one of the things that I decided about my art pretty early was that I was going to go into it with the attitude that there are no mistakes, that if I make a mistake, I'm going to take that as a sign from my ancestors that there's a different or a better way to do what I was trying to do. And if it... If at the end of the day it doesn't look like what I thought it was going to look like, I'm going to accept that my way was maybe not the way that it was supposed to be. And I think that doing that has been really freeing. And like, I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but it feels like I have been able to cultivate a greater appreciation for for those who came before me who I'm I'm doing the same kinds of patterns that they did. And I'm I'm learning how to create in a way that they created, but in my own way, because I am different. The Tongan word for someone who's not full Tongan is, or someone who is like has a parent that's not Tongan is Hafikasi, which means half caste, half. And I feel like my Artwork is kind of an extension of this Havakasi weirdness that is kind of like what other people do, but not, <laughs> you know. Um, and I feel like by doing it in the way that feels true to me, it allows other people to do the same. And, you know, I've had people that came up to me and, you know, have been have said that, that, like, oh, I love that this is kind of traditional, but not, you know, and that feels like, you know, especially I think as an American, you know, as a Pacific Islander living in the United States, we're not the same exactly as those who live in the islands, and that's okay, and it doesn't detract from our Polynesianness. It can be an addition instead of a subtraction
0: oh that's those are terrific reflections um, and I am so excited uh that your career as an artist has has taken off like this, and I do love your pieces because of that unique stamp you put on them, the wonderful, you you know, Pacifica elements to it, but also, you know, that these were born from your positionality as an American woman too. So anyway, I just, I just love your work. And thank you Kalani for being a guest today and for um, letting us share your life story and for updating us on your life and for sharing your reflections on Um, this issue of race in the church. And I I just want to say that I, I value your thoughts so much. I value your vulnerability and a huge thank you to you.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. I've appreciated being here.
0: One final word of thanks to Shiloh Logan for the many hours he put into editing this episode. A Claremont Graduate University Mormon Studies Podcast. Hi, this is Caroline Klein, host of This Global Latter-day Life. If you're enjoying the kind of stories you're hearing from Latter-day Saint women around the world on this show, you'll also enjoy my new book. It's called Mormon Women at the Crossroads, and it's filled with compelling stories like the ones you've been hearing on This Global Latter-day Life. Order a copy at the University of Illinois Press website, on Amazon.com, or from your favorite local book retailer, Mormon Women at the Crossroads by Caroline Klein. This global Latter day Life is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the Dialogue Gospel Study Podcast. I recently listened to a dialogue lesson led by Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife discussing the fall of King David in the Old Testament, and I just loved her insights about hubris, self deception, vulnerability, and spiritual development. The Dialogue Gospel Study Podcast.